the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. And here we go. Line brawl to start this game. Jeremy Loblotsky and John Morasky teeing off on one another. And Toporowski is just pounding away at Robinson. These, we said Toporowski, this is the guy who set a Western Hockey League record for 505 penalty minutes. Well, let's call it like it is. Toporowski's a boon. Getting closer. He reaches in a right back. Right, right. He's not that Ripson. He's just lost. Still Grimson. Oh, my goodness. Scott Parker for the KO of Still Grimson. He- this is one of the best hockey fights we have seen in a long time. Vinnie Bush tells the linesman, get the heck out of my kitchen. He absolutely decked Jim Crate with a wild right. A sheer standard by a big left hand by Wade Bielek. Chris Nyland on a penalty shot. Scores! Bugard down the wing. Bugard bombs away. Hello everybody and thank you for tuning in to the Five for Fighting podcast. My name is Alec, your host, and this is the show where we focus on the players who drop the gloves and the fans who enjoyed watching them do it. And today's episode is number 32 with Paxton Schulte. And uh, Paxton was awesome. He played a few games in the NHL, fought a bunch of tough dudes in the AHL, and even fought some tough dudes over in the um, EIHL, which is the Elite League, or um, formerly known as the BSL, the British Super League. So he, uh, he fought over there and fought some big-name guys who were also NHLers. Um, and even opened up about the NICAR incident when he played against Nottingham. Uh, kind of the rematch a little bit there, and, uh, you know, it's, according to him, it's the first time he really opens up about it, so it's um, it was cool to hear about it, and at the same time, you know, I, I appreciate him opening up about it because it kind of wasn't easy for him to talk about uh, some of the injuries he sustained from it, and uh, I guess kind of the general, uh, I hate using the term the code, but, you know, uh, it, it was a little greasy what NICAR did, to say the least, so... Um, <laughs> He goes into that a little bit as well. Um, this is the very end if you're tuning in for that. But um, sorry, I got to chew in over here. But I apologize that this episode is delayed getting out. Um, I had posted earlier on Twitter that I was going to kind of address, and I had a couple people ask me, you know, I thought it was going to be out. I thought it was going to be out. Uh, I was a little busy at work here and there. But uh, the main thing was, you know, um, yeah, it's going to be a little, little weird to open up about this as if, you know, anybody gives a shit about my problems. But, um, no, so if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that uh, quite a while back, I can't remember when, um, I had stated that I was going to go back into the military. And, you know, for those those who know, you know, of course, I was in the Marine Corps for four years and got out and been in Florida living it up ever since and kind of missed that, that brotherhood-ish feeling. Um, I was going to do, you know, possibly police, stuff like that. And I kind of didn't really have any direction in my life. You know, I'm working construction right now, but I... I talking with the company and, you know, wanting to advance more, I can stay with this company now and they have a spot for me, which is awesome. So that kind of worked out in my favor, but um, I still miss the military a little bit. And, you know, I was going to do the National Guard, which is kind of the reserves or, uh, for the state. And, you know, if you have to go overseas, um, I was going to do that. So it's been kind of getting pushed back and pushed back. I was going to wait till me and the fiance got married because we, uh, you know, with with joining, you get benefits for your spouse as well. So it's going to benefit her. She'd be covered under our health care and everything like that, which I'm not sure if the Army uses TRICARE. I think it's TRICARE all across. Um, 
you know, I've been out so for a couple of years now, so I'm not a hundred percent sure what the healthcare system is there, but, um, no. So I was going to wait for that and, um, kind of got pushed back, pushed back, pushed back and COVID-19. Well, our wedding got pushed back because her brother is in the air force reserves was actually deployed over to Iraq. So we pushed the wedding back a bit, um, to ensure that he was there. Cause of course we're not going to have a wedding without her. It's her twin brother. So, um, they're really close. And of course I wasn't going to have a, you know, a wedding without her brother there. And he's one of my groomsmen actually I've become really close to them too. He's an awesome dude. We go golfing all the time. So definitely didn't want to uh, leave out the future brother-in-law. So we pushed that back. And, uh, one thing leads to another COVID-19 comes along and it's probably about a literally like a month out of the wedding. COVID-19 comes along, pushes the wedding back again. So now we're not getting married till January of next year, unfortunately, but I guess it's a good thing because it'll be nice and cool out and it's an outdoor wedding down here in Florida. Very hot. It is blistering hot right now. Um, the other side of that part of it is my fault because I have uh, <laughs> let myself go to say the least as far as being in shape and military ready. Um, I tipped the scale and 300 pounds and looked at myself in the mirror one day and I was kind of reminiscing about the military a little bit, you know, going through old pictures with buddies and stuff and then look in the mirror and I don't even fucking recognize the guy that's, you know, looking back at me. And it's just, uh, no, it's, it's weird for me and it's kind of hard to, I guess, not really hard to talk about. I mean, I'm content with it, obviously, but, um, (laughs) really made me think, you know, we get really, uh, if if I'm trying to do this, I really got to get myself back in shape and whip it into gear. So, um, I was debating on kind of just releasing the last three episodes I have, which I have this one with Schulte, I have one with Rushton, and I have another one with old Dougie Mann. Um, that's the ones I have, you know, in the pipeline here. I was thinking about just releasing those, and then one last episode of kind of saying, you know, quitting the podcast, gonna, you know, I guess um, quit doing it so I can kind of focus on other things, but. Um, it's not that I lost my passion for podcasting at all. In fact, that's the exact opposite. I love this shit and being able to talk to these guys and get their stories out that I think are important because they're forgotten in the hockey world. And at the end of the day, this is a podcast for the players. It's not about me at all. It's uh, for the players and the fight fans and keeping the kind of the old school feel of hockey alive a little bit. Um, sorry if my dip spitting is nasty. It's just um, a little bit <laughs> been a little bit stressed out lately. So we're doing this with a uh, with a chaw in, but you know. Um, so no, it was never like I, you know, I didn't lose the passion or drive to do a podcast at all. I was just trying to manage time and when am I going to work out? Because now I got I got work and I'm trying to go to the gym early in the morning, go to work, then go for a run after work, and then come home and do all this. And then sometimes you know worrying about a podcast setting up times, it just it's, it gets a lot to manage when you're not getting. Not that I'm saying I'm trying to get paid for this shit. I'm doing this shit out of my own leisure, but a little bit harder to get going for it when it's kind of just for a hobby and it might be a little distracting from other other things but again that's my fault and not having kind of the drive to get off my ass and go do it so it was kind of just you know debating on whether or not I should you know just kind of not I wasn't going to cancel the podcast I wasn't going to like you know just take everything off and put everything down off of iTunes Google Play Spotify I was going to leave everything up but um as far as like interviewing and um you know doing more episodes, I was going to stop. But um, I think the best way to kind of go about everything is, f- fuck, just <laughs> just do it, I guess you could say, um, is, you know, get, get off my ass, go work out, do this, you should be able to do this. So, you know what, <laughs> at 18, I sat there and joined the military, 
you know, thought I could fucking run through a wall at the time and all the shit I go through or I went through then I could manage. And so if I can manage that, I should be able to manage getting off my ass, going to work and doing a podcast, you know, that shouldn't be enough or it shouldn't be much to get me down. So I was, I was really on the fence about it. And I talked to a couple of people about it and, um, you know, just, I guess, um, well, like airing everything out, I guess, or, uh, you know, venting we'll say kind of like I'm doing now. So, um, but I made up my mind that I am going to keep the podcast going because I just, like again I didn't lose my driver passion for podcasting. It's a fun, it's an awesome way. I get to talk to all these fucking awesome players that laid it all laid it out on the line on the ice and have great stories. And I've uh, been told by many players it's kind of therapeutic for them to hear guys who shared the similar experiences them when they were playing, or even guys that I've had on to sit there and come onto the podcast and talk about you know the game and that they really haven't opened up to anybody about in years and um and the way I kind of look at that like the military you know I don't, I don't really talk about the military too much I of course I kind of compare sometimes in the um in the podcast whether it's like kind of like the military is kind of like that brotherhood ish that you find in the locker room with hockey so um kind of the same thing I know it's kind of apples to oranges but at the same time the trees aren't too far from each other so um, well, uh, I decided we'll keep it going here and not going to let anything, uh, anything stop me at this point. You know, I'm already, uh, I've already started to, you know, eat a lot better and fucking get off my ass. I'm already down 12 pounds. So there's that, <laughs> um, this ain't going to turn into like a weight loss journey, fucking podcast, anything like that. So, but I already got another interview, hopefully lined up for tomorrow that we can get done, um, with another actually former NHL player. So I think that'll be really good for everybody. Um, and get his story out there because I don't think he's he's never been on a podcast. He said so. Uh, I think this will be the first time ever hearing about his story. So that's going to be cool. So uh, no, I apologize for the delay on everything. And I was kind of very quiet on social media for a couple of days. And uh, I don't even think I was really posting in the Enforcer Appreciation Group. I was just kind of taking time to myself to think about everything. And I know it probably sounds fucking lame or you know whatever because it's just me bitching and moaning or me being a lazy fuck. So. Um, but no, it's just, uh, it was weird for me to look, you know, to look myself in the mirror cause I had been trying to lose weight a little bit and I was like, yeah, I know it's getting out of hand or whatever. I'm living my best life as they say. Um, and the best life is definitely not being 300 pounds. We'll put it, <laughs> we'll put it that way. Um, so I apologize. This intro is going to run a little long here because it's uh, of course me venting and bitching a little bit, but like I said, the podcast is going to continue and the show must go on. So with that being said, what does that mean for the podcast when I do happen to join the military? Um, nothing. It'll be on hold for a couple months for training. So I apologize for that. That's but I'm not trying to join until probably next March is what we're looking at. Um, so until then the podcast is going to keep going. Still going to push out content for you guys and, uh, you know, get, get the boys stories out there. So, you know, you don't have to worry about it. It's not the podcast isn't going anywhere. But yeah, so the show will go on, like I said, and we'll make it happen. Um, you know, that being said, I'd like to give a shout out to a couple other podcasts out there. And of course, you know, Darren, the OG, the original enforcer podcast over at Fourth Line Voices with the Hockey Podcast Network. Um, just had an episode out with the, um, well, who do you have? He had Clark Wilm, and then he just released the From the Vault with Dan Kopeck. And those episodes are awesome. Kopeck is uh, one of, probably one of my favorite interviews he's actually done and you can go listen to that one it was one of his earlier episodes from when he had the show before everything crashed and um no it's cool to hear that one 
And then, of course, Joe over at the Coliseum Chronicles, who just had Rob DeMaio on. And it was cool. I got to see Rob DeMaio on his very last year he ever played. I, he played in Tampa. So I, I remember watching him play a bit. And um, I don't think he was fighting as much, which, of course, can't blame him. He's winding down his career. What's he going or why is he going to? But um, he put up some good points. And I, I always enjoyed having DeMaio on the team. And I remember my uncle. Um, of course, he was a hockey fan of my family who really drew me to the game. And I remember going to games, and uh, you pointed out DeMaio, and he was a tough dude, and he was really good at hitting and everything like that. So I'd always look for DeMaio on the ice, and I really enjoyed having him here in Tampa for his last year. So that was awesome. But, uh, yeah, so Joe over there just had him on. And, of course, the usual suspects as well with Bobby Longgrass over at the Bucket Drop Podcast. And he actually had me on. I think my episode will be out on Wednesday, I think I believe he said, which is we go over uh, the top ten Tampa Bay Lightning enforcers of all time. And, of course, it's subjective, and it's my list. And, actually, it's kind of hard to go <laughs> go through Tampa. Uh, they really didn't have too, too many guys that were there for a long period of time as far as enforcers go. Um, so, it was it, a lot of it's interchangeable. I think I think the top three are pretty, pretty solid as far as um, their spots. I think they could probably stay there. But everything after that, I really think you could just interchange it out as much as you want. Um, and then he's going to have, uh, well, I think he already had him on, but I don't know when the episode's going to be released, but he had a uh, fourth-line voice, Darren, over there again. And they did top 10 LNH guys, and it's funny, Darren had the opposite problem, and we had messaged back and forth about it. Um, I didn't have enough guys with Tampa, and he had too many guys, of course, in the LNH, <laughs> which is kind of funny because, of course, uh, the league was just tough as fucking nails. So um, going back and forth, and he even asked for some expert advice from old Dean Mayrand, which is pretty funny. And, you know, it's like, you know, throw a dart and hit somebody and you could probably throw them on the list because <laughs> there's so many tough guys that went through that league. But, yeah, so he's going to be on there eventually with uh, the bucket drop. And, um, you know, I had a great time doing the top 10 Tampa Bay Lighting Enforcers. Anytime I get an excuse to talk hockey, I'll do it because this is kind of my outlet is talking hockey on the podcast. I don't really talk about hockey um, outside of it, of course, because there's not too many, especially like the dedicated enforcer fans, obviously. But, um you know, there's a plenty of hockey fans, but they all kind of know the newer game. So I can't really talk about the old school stuff with uh, with people. Um, and of course, William over at the Biscuit, go check him out. And um, one I always keep forgetting to mention, and I don't know why I do, but is uh, Shane over at the History of Hockey podcast. I can't remember how many parts he had, but he just did a special on like. And anytime you want to go over to history hot or history of hockey, excuse me, awesome stuff. He's had a bunch of bunch of episodes. I've been on his podcast. I've had him on. We did kind of a. Uh, what he called a swap cast and that's basically where we record the same episode and release it on both podcasts and um we covered the history of fighting in hockey and like enforcers which is kind of cool but he's also had one where it's um it was doug the hammer smith and that's of course you know the original uh the goon i guess you could say um that was the inspiration for the movie so that was kind of cool it was doug the hammer smith um he said, yeah, he did a three-part series on him, and then he just did one where it was Women of the Wild West, I think it was called, and uh, covers women's hockey from, like, the really early days. So that was cool to hear that one. And he did, I, I want to say he's got, like, six or seven parts for that one. It's long as all hell. Um, so, yeah, go check that one out. But last but not least, we'll cover the uh, the social medias here. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter at 5, the number 5, and then 4Fighting. 
Um, is it pod? I think it's just. I think it's just now. Now I'm confusing myself because I have. I've had to change it a couple times on there to try to like draw traffic. I guess let me let me double check here. Real professional I am over here, not even knowing my own social media stuff. Um, even though I mention it like every episode, of course I try to click Twitter and Instagram pops up. Um, okay, so it's the number five and then four fighting pod, and then over on Instagram it is the. No, it's just spelled out regularly, five for fighting pod. And if you want to follow the podcast on Facebook, go to the official page, official, <laughs> go to the page. Um, I say official as if there's imitators out there. Um, but no, it's on the page. It's just five for fighting podcast and it'll pull right up and give it a like and a follow and it'll, you'll be up to date on everything like that. And uh, while you're on Facebook, go check out the enforcer appreciation group. That's how you get your fix on fights and, um, you know, pictures of enforcers or just general discussions. It's kind of like um, the old message boards, and it's really, really something special, I think. And we have over 10,000 people in the group, and I started that a little over a year ago, and it's crazy how, how fast it grew. Um, I think once I changed the name to Enforcer Appreciation, it kind of toned down a bit as far as, um, uh, you know, getting new members daily because it's not hockey fights and brawls or brawls or fights isn't highlighted in it so you really got to kind of know your stuff to get in which i think is good because it, it weeds out kind of the idiots um you still get the occasional idiot, but we'll boot them right away so um yeah go check that out and uh for other fights on youtube if you want to check him out go to fourth line voice and uh, as mentioned before with darren he's got runs an awesome youtube page and he uh, has a bunch of different fights, a lot of juniors, minor leagues, stuff like that. And, uh, of course, when Probert was king, that's Steve over there, and he's been on Fourth Line Voice. And he runs an awesome YouTube channel as well and also runs a sweet website. Just go to winprobertwasking.com, and he goes so in-depth. And he had a, has a top 25 list of all-time NHL enforcers, and he goes in-depth with it and puts out paragraphs. And, I mean, I don't know how long it took him to do this. I, I think he mentioned it before, but... It is super in-depth and gives reasoning as to why this guy is here, what brought him up, what brought him down, what kind of hindered it um, as far as why he might not be a little bit higher. So definitely go check that out. Um, but like I said, that that's pretty much it, guys. Um, you know, thanks for bearing with me here. I know I wasn't really – it's not like I was gone for like, a, you know, three weeks or something, but – I know people were kind of wondering, you know, where the hell is the Schulte episode at? It you know, said it was going to release tonight, and then said it was going to release another night. And so um, just me being uh, trying to reevaluate some shit is all. But um, like I said, got it figured out. And, you know, we're going to truck in. <laughs> I got to get my fat ass into the gym again and everything like that. So, um, no, but anyways, thanks for sticking, sticking to the podcast. And, um, you know, if, if you're just tuning in for the first time, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the other episodes I have. I have plenty of tough guys. Peter Zerba, Mark McFarlane, Ken Tasker, Jeremy Yablonski, Frank Bylois, Chris Nyland, Rob Ray, Andre Waugh, guys like that. Um, you know, the, the content is there so you can provide hours of entertainment for you guys. Um, so anyways, we'll wrap it up here. Appreciate you. Sorry for the, me venting and you know, bitching and moaning about everything, but uh, just had to get it off my chest, I guess. But anyways, without further ado, we will pass it over to Paxton Schulte. Hope you guys enjoy. This should be good. This should be very good. All right, and today's guest on the Five for Fighting podcast, we have a guy who managed to rack up 2,850 career penalty minutes in his time playing hockey and also managed to rack up 645 points throughout his career, along with having his number retired in Belfast, and that is none other than Paxton Schulte. Paxton, how you doing today, man? Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me, Alex. 
Well, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, giving everybody a listen. It's good. I'm, I'm glad I got someone on who played a uh, pretty extended time over in the uh, the European League because most of the time uh, I'll have some guests on. And they've, they've played over there, but they maybe played one or two seasons. So you've got to, uh, got to have a couple seasons over there. So it'll be good to get some stories from me and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, enlighten everybody on what it was like to play over there. Absolutely. Like you said, there's, uh, this was, like I said, I spent a little bit of time so I could see the evolution of the game even in the – Six years that I was there, from North American players to the British-born, which is uh, which has come a long way, along with the the European hockey game and the British uh, British um, national team as well. So it's been exciting for me to see that, see my friends, some that have stayed, and and their kids evolving over there as well, and and doing well. Right on, man. Um, so I guess we'll start from the beginning here. You know, well, you started off at the University in North Dakota, um, and. You know, were you the typical Canadian kid born on skates? I always ask this, and you know, because sometimes guys are late bloomers, or they, um, you know, they might not have started till uh, maybe I guess eight. Eight is considered like a late age to start hockey up there in Canada. Um, so, did you were you the typical Canadian kid born on ice, like right on the pond, pretty much? I think so. I, I grew up on a farm. Uh, learned all my work ethic from my parents. Um, the uh, I think I wanted to be a, a cowboy when I, when I. First things came out, but uh, my God-given talent led me towards hockey, and and obviously skate found their way to my feet, and and it was just uh, forward from there. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, it's like uh, it's if it, typically everybody's either like on the farm or they're doing some sort of some sort of like logging work up there. It seems uh, so. It's always always good to get the background, and you know, always appreciate the farmers because I come uh, come from Iowa, so. Um, definitely always thankful for farmers and what they do and everything like that. Um, so you started off in the university of North Dakota here. And of course it's funny laughing at your, your penalty minutes and how many points you put up, but you managed to start actually in university. So how did that kind of happen? Well, I played tier two here in Alberta, uh, got my skull, then went to North Dakota. I always joke with the kids. I his favorite and they go well how do you know that i said well i sat beside him on the bench the whole time but uh <laughs> but uh, yeah i started there uh, education has always been a, a, an important thing to myself and my parents and uh after one year there uh looking back i don't want to say it was that i thought about it more and knowing more about education i think i would have stayed there i felt that uh my game maybe more suited the Western Hockey League, a little bit more rough and tumble. Um, given given a chance, I would have gone back, got my education, uh, especially with this COVID being what it is these days. Uh, I think it's easier to to find a job that better suits your body after putting it through years and years of um, grueling, grueling and intense workouts, as well as fighting and just training itself and forward from there. Um, place your mind and there's your body these days absolutely and uh you know so you you ended up in spokane um and funny enough it was, i believe it was the year actually or the year before you got there was a uh, carrie toporowski so did you ever hear about the mythical 505 penalty minutes before you got there yeah i actually played against carrie in the american league uh played with his younger brother uh, uh brad right Brad, yes, Brad. There's the two of them. I think Brad played uh, with Brad and then played against his other brother overseas as well. Um, 
scary from my all accounts, my coach, Brian Maxwell, who was a great coach, is a great coach, was a great coach, had told me stories of him icing his hand uh, on, a, on a road trip on the east between games just so he could fight again, you know, fighting two, three times a game. So he was a tough character, um, never had to fight him. I'm going to say, luckily, I didn't have to fight him. But um, like I said, there comes a time when uh, you either protect a teammate or change the momentum of a game. But, yeah, Terry was uh, every bit as tough as, as they came. And like you said, I never fought him, never played with him, just against him. Right. Well, you guys had a, a super tough team up there in uh, Spokane. Well, it's funny. You led the team in points, but you also had 222 penalty minutes. So you were getting it done, and it seemed like that's how it was back in the old Western League, even though you know you could be a 40-goal a scorer, but yet you're you're still putting up at least 100 penalty minutes, it seemed like. The game has changed. Uh, uh, there's very few guys that are able to be top end and put up points these days. Um, I got a, my first fight in the Western, one of the first fights in the Western Hockey League was with Kent Staniforth, one of the toughest guys out of the East. And my coach told me, he said, we got to teach you how to fight or you're going to get killed. So, yeah, I never I never grew up. I, I, I still don't enjoy fighting, um, something that I kind of fell into. And uh, like I said, I did what I had to to stay in hockey, uh, put up the numbers as well as be tough on the ice as well. Right on, man. And so the team that you had, though, you had yourself, Frank Evans, Aaron Bow, Jamie Linden, Justin Hoking, and Mike Gray, just to name a couple. I mean, it must have been some just absolute gong shows some games. Yeah, there were, you never had to wait or, or have somebody step in to make sure that the people were awake in the stands or on the ice. There was always, uh, there was no shortage of guys to, to step up and answer the bell, whether it be at home or on the road. So we did a good job there. I don't think we were intimidated going into any any buildings. Um, and in saying that, we, we we were able to be a fairly successful team uh, in our junior years. We had Kevin Sawyer uh, as well, uh, who went on, and uh, one guy that, that definitely earned everything that he got, one of the hardest-working guys I, I know, uh, Probably didn't like fighting either, but uh, tough as nails and never backed down from anything as well. Yeah, you're in my notes over here. I had uh, had Sawyer written down because he played with you guys next uh, the very next year, so I was going to ask you about him. Uh, but you already you already covered it. Look at that. Um, so yeah, uh, a couple of guys I wanted to ask you about that you fought that year. Um, one being John Baduke, who's got a pretty big reputation. What was it like fighting him? I, I have utmost respect for Johnny, but I have to say I was pretty successful against John. But uh, another guy that worked hard, uh, did what he had to do, uh, was the ultimate team guy. Um, you know, he's his, like I said, I, I respect everything he did. Uh, I Like I said, I was lucky enough to have good success against him, uh, both in our barn and, and their barn. But uh, it's never an easy job. He's a... Uh, He's a great guy off the ice. I've met him a few times, and uh, kudos to him for doing what he did for as long as he did. Absolutely, and uh, you know, you fought another guy who actually became like kind of a NHL regular was uh, Brendan Witt. What was it like fighting him? Uh, yeah, actually, we had the same East. Uh, I think it was the one time I did fight him. We uh, it was a TSN game. It was come see Valari Bure. And uh, Brent Valari Bury and the Spokane Chiefs versus Brendan Witt and the Seattle 
Seattle uh, Thunderbirds, and I ended up having two goals in the fight in the first period, and we lost 3-2 overtime. It was one of the only TSN games. So, But it was good. We had the same agent, and uh, like you said, we teed off on each other. I think he, looking back, I have that fight on tape, and uh, had my visor not been there, I'm pretty sure my nose would have been on the other side of my face. So he was a tough kid, too. Um, Alex said, NHL career, and uh, you know, I, I don't remember a lot about the fight other than what I watched, but you know, anybody that stands up and fights anybody on any given day is, has got some, some balls, or or maybe just not right in the head some days. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> you know, kidding. Uh, you wouldn't see me doing it, but uh, so before you, we leave Spokane here, because uh, you know, you played two years there, uh, your final fight, it looks like, well, at least on your fight card here. Um, thank you to Fourth Line Voice for getting this for me, actually, because I, I was having trouble finding it. I think I'd, we'd talked about it beforehand. Uh, I'd found it, like, forever ago, and then I couldn't couldn't pull it up again. But luckily, uh, Fourth Line Voice came in to save the day for me. But uh, you fought another tough dude who also played in the NHL, was uh, Todd Simpson. What was it like fighting him? Did I fight Todd? Uh, your fight card says you did. I... Did I fight him in the uh, in the um, Western Hockey League as well? Yeah, it says um, it says uh, try. Uh, it looks like Spokane versus Tri City is what it's got you down here as. Huh. Well, you know what? I don't remember that one, but I do know that I'm pretty sure I fought him in the American League as well, and then I ended up being teammates with him in St. John a little bit later. Yep. Uh, like he he is, uh, and I saw him fight firsthand either against against me in the American League or with him when he was when I played with him in St. John and yeah he was uh, he was definitely definitely a team guy um he stood in there he he gave he gave more than he took that's definitely for sure so um he's one of those guys that you need to have have on your team yeah Todd Simpson he was a tough motherfucker um so well the next year you actually well you end up in Cornwall, but in order to get there, you actually got drafted 124th overall by the Quebec Nordiques. What was that feeling like getting drafted, man? It was, it was awesome. Uh, like I said, my first year draft eligibility, I was rated 63rd as an 18-year-old, and at that time you had to go in the first three rounds. Uh, the next year I wasn't even rated, spoken to by any NHL teams. Then the following year, uh, coming from Spokane, uh, I was rated 38th there, and then they opened it up to the Russians and, and fell to 124th. But uh, it was amazing. My dad was there, my agent, uh, Lanny McDonald, and Daryl Settler were sitting uh, just up above us in the in the uh, Montreal Forum with their son, with Daryl's son. Uh, and, yeah, uh, like you said, uh, I was able to make my dad proud. Or I mean, he always told me I was, he was proud of me, but I felt that was something that, uh, I gave to him because of what he gave to me, and and it was it was a special moment. Uh, uh, we shared shared a hug and a few tears, and and went from there. Yeah, it was it was a day I will definitely not forget. Absolutely, man. No kidding. What a uh, what a dream come true. And it's funny, people out there, whether you know you played one NHL game or a hundred, but people will look at that and oh, you only played one NHL game. You know how good you have to be to even play one game or even just get mentioned in the draft. You got to be a top tier player. And um, I mean, what, what a player you were in junior as hell. You you had about three hundred sixty penalty minutes, and 
uh, I don't know, probably around 150 points. So you were uh, definitely making it happen out there. That's for sure. Um, so you, you actually you ended up in Cornwall, though. What was your what was your experiences like in Cornwall? Um, it was it was good. Uh, like you said about the points and and so on and so forth. I I uh, probably I think I had more even strength goals my first year in Cornwall than I did my last year in junior, just because of the power play. But um, coming out of junior, I felt I was I was strong. I was one of the better fighters. I had think Kale House and maybe J- Jamie Jason Bowen had given me a few uh, few pops to the face, which I remember. But other than that, I, I thought I had done well. And then going into first year in Cornwall, I thought. Uh, uh, Serge Engelhardt and Jamie Hushkoff, two of my first three fights, and I end up with 36 stitches. So definitely the man um, strong and the boy strong are two different things. Uh, I joked with Jamie when I met him in, in Calgary's camp. We went to camp one year that uh, he gave me 16 stitches, and I broke his hand and scored the game-winning goal. I mean, we had a laugh about that. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, so, you know, at this point, you know, you, you've been through juniors a bit, and, you know, you're in the AHL. Are, do you kind of understand, I, I won't say understand, but are you kind of comfortable with your role as being a guy, maybe not the super heavyweight of the team, but, you know, if you need to drop the gloves, you're more than willing because, well, I mean, it shows it through your career that you were definitely more than willing, but were you kind of comfortable and almost felt like, you know, you, you kind of got in a groove a little bit, like you could actually do this and, you know, you're fine with it? Um, I don't know that I ever... I don't want to say accepted it. I don't think I was ever wanted to do it. I think I did it to stay there. Like uh, it wasn't until junior that I fought, and even in my later years. I mean, I went from thirty goals to thirty fights in the American League as a as a point scorer. And the the idea of of fighting, I did it. Like you said, protect the teammate, change the momentum of the game, and. And with the way I played, that reckless abandon and going to the net when you could bump a goalie here and there and knew what to expect, uh, I think I accepted that because of how I played. The I don't think that there were guys on our team, I, I felt that that was maybe more their role. Um, I know I had a coach, Jacques Martin, my first year was upset that on my first year that I fought as much as I did. I mean, like you said, my numbers were good in junior. I had the had what I felt was at least a, a, a decent touch around the net, and and then just fell into it from like you said, thirty goals to thirty fights, and it wasn't something that I ever enjoyed doing, but I I loved hockey more. I tell my son that if the Oilers were to were to say you have to live on the street, but you can play for us and fight every night but we're not paying you a dime, I would do it. You know what I mean? Like, it, the, the trade-off between between the love of the game and fighting, the love of the game would win every every time, if an, even if the men's fighting every night. Right, and it seems like it's like that for a lot of guys. Now, don't get me wrong, there's definitely guys out there who definitely enjoy their role in the, in the fighting and everything, but as far as fighting just to play one game in the NHL, a lot of guys will tell you, I mean, every time they'll say, yeah, 100% they'll do it. And there's, uh, I don't know if you've watched Ice Guardians at all, but they kind of asked that at the very end. And uh, Absolutely. It's it's a very, very close to the heart, and it's a very good uh, um, comparison to the game. I think the, the lady in that, uh, the British or... Oh, yeah, uh, Dr. Victoria Silverwood. I think she 
and I know she never played professional hockey, but I think she was the closest to describing it that I've ever heard anybody say it. Uh, even for someone that has played the game, she was uh, very emotional and, and heartfelt when it came from her. I think she was uh, as close as you can be to it without actually living it. Right. Yeah, she was absolutely awesome in that documentary. And uh, I know she had a segment actually not too long ago. And she was trying to explain it to these people, and they were on, like, some news show, and they wouldn't even let her get almost, like, a word in. Um, just trying to refute everything she was saying. It didn't make any sense. But, uh, yeah, she was definitely awesome in that Nice Guardians. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I think I, the first three times I watched that, every time towards the end, it was, like, almost holding back tears. It's like a fight fan. <laughs> as huh. funny as it is to say. I, but I cry. I'm not going to lie to you. Every time I watch it, I'm <laughs> teary-eyed. And it's it, because, because you felt it. Like you said, you were there. For your for your teammates as much as you were there for yourself, you you never had you never questioned what you do for your teammate. It wasn't it wasn't like well maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't. Is how do I feel today? It was it was as if you would do it protecting a sibling, uh, your kid, a parent or a grandparent. It was there was no question. You there was no thinking. You did what you had to do uh, in order to. Uh, to stay with that family, to protect them, and overcome any adversities that you have in your family. Absolutely. And, yeah, that, that line by Kelly Chase with a little more fire every time. Oh, Jesus Christ. Turns into someone's chopping onions in the fucking room every time. <laughs> um, uh, and and, and it, it, it is. And, and I'm, I'm glad, actually, glad you brought it up because it's an emotion. And I know they say take take fighting out of hockey, but, but there, there, there's something that's like, like saying don't love someone either you love them or you don't uh, it's an emotion that you don't have a control over uh when it becomes you know uh, maternal almost right protect protect your kid and that and that's the sense you know if you said that to a mom you said well you know what talk talk to the intruder through and say you know what you're gonna go to jail instead of your first thought is to attack him and rip and scratch his eyes out protect your your kids right i don't think you can say that about hockey you can't say you know just turn it off the ref will look after it at some point you are emotionally engaged and and uh, for lack of a better word attached to that that situation in a way that there's no release until, until all the emotions are are extinguished Right, it's almost like a release valve. You need to eat that, that. It's half the time if you just let two guys fight. Chances are the dumb shit's going to stop after that. You got it out of your system, and it's just it's the way the game is now. And uh, yeah, people like it. I personally don't. Uh, it is what it is. But um, yeah, it's unfortunate uh, how kind of the role has been pushed out a bit. But you know, luckily we got. This. I would. I I never liked it. I did it, and like you said. Is there a place for it? Yes. The, the the European teams that I have played, the sticks I find are definitely higher. There's more. I was always worried, worried about getting a stick in the face playing European teams with a visor than I ever was getting getting a, a puck or a stick in the face when I knew that that there was another guy on the other side that says, you know what, if you if you take and hurt my my little guy, I'm going to hurt your your best guy, right? I mean. If you think that if if U.S. didn't have nuclear weapons and Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, that there would be the same kind of relationship, if one or the other had them, 
just knowing that they have them and probably will never be used, it keeps everybody at base. Exactly, and it's like uh, it's a deterrent, and whether people want to admit it or not, because there's a lot of people out there who think that it's not a deterrent. It definitely isn't. Um, you know, it's good for players like yourself. Uh, you have lived it and did it yourself. Explain that kind yeah. of to to everybody out here that you know, like you just said, it is a deterrent. Whether again, people want to admit it or not. So, uh, no, it's good to hear. Yeah. It. I'm glad you broke it down that way. Yeah, like you said, you think, and Cassian with with McDavid and Drysaddle, they're they're still going to be great players. But do you not think that if you're going into the corner and you see an orange jersey coming to you, and you don't know whether it's Cassian, Drysaddle, or McDavid? that, you know what, you're not having second thoughts about going in and grabbing that puck. You know, Cassian plays the game uh, fairly honest and straightforward. And you know what, if, if you have that thought in the back of your mind, it definitely creates room. Like you said, you have to be able to think the game mentally and physically. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, a guy I wanted to ask you about before we get to your NHL debut, because, of course, your, your rookie year in the AHL, you make your NHL debut. Uh, but real quick, I got to ask you about him, who was another guy who played in the show, was uh, Reed Simpson, and you fought him. What was it like fighting him? That was probably one of the better ones fights that I had one of my one of my first years uh, with Reed. Uh, actually, I watched it not too long ago. I come across, and I don't even know how, on the Internet, of course, again. And, uh, like you said, it was just, I was just glad to be in a fight that I wasn't taking more than I was given. But, uh, he, he, he's a tough guy. I've seen him fight more than I, than, than obviously that I obviously fought him. But, uh, yeah, just hold on and throw. Um, I learned a lot uh, my second year from a guy named Serge Roberge, uh, which helped me in my fighting for sure. But yeah, Reed. Like I said, you don't remember a lot. I was like a light switch. Uh, I played the game, and then when it was time, you throw, and everything's black in front of you, and then lights are off, and okay, we'll go to the penalty box, and I'll buy you a beer later upstairs. You know, it was, it was part of the game. It wasn't a grudge held. wasn't a cheap shot. Cheap shots, that's still going to never have had a part of the game. Right, and yeah, Simpson, he was uh, definitely a tough dude. Um so you get called up, and it's you know your rookie year in the AHL, and you're already making your NHL debut that same year. What was that like getting called up to the show, man? Uh, like you said, your cup of tea, and it literally was that. Um, I uh, got called up that day. The flew in uh, the day of, dressed first shift, hockey penalty behind the net. Uh, I think I had two or three shifts the first period, none the second, two or three. Warmed up with Kaminsky and Sundin, so you're just higher than a kite. Uh, I got in a scrum, we were playing Tampa, and this guy, Chris Joseph, he looked over and said, what are you doing here? I got called up. So I had skated with him for years in Edmonton here. He's a, a good friend of mine. He's now a firefighter here in Edmonton. Uh, lost his son, uh, Jackson, in the Humboldt tragedy. Uh, like I said, uh, hope that never happens to anybody else. And first time I saw him, I was working at a sports store. Came around the corner and just gave him a hug. Like that's just a hard, hard pill for anybody to uh, to to stomach. But uh, anyway, getting back to the game, it was uh, yeah, I was up, and then the next day you get called into the office and you're sent down, and 
like I said, I don't remember a lot about my first as much as I do my second. So, but it's, it's overwhelming. Like it's a lot as a 21 year old kid. I don't care how grounded you are um, to to kind of analyze and compute basically what's going on and where you should or shouldn't be in the speed of the game as well. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I mean, just like you said, just playing in the AHL alone is, or even just the dub is, you're a top tier hockey. And then just to get called up to the NHL, I couldn't imagine, you know, what kind of feeling, especially you know, being at 21, what that's got to feel like. And you know, it's cool that you uh, warming up with Kaminsky. I had Kaminsky on, so for those listening, you can go back and listen to that episode after this one. Um, hey. But yeah, what what was it like with Kaminsky, man? Did you you, you have any interaction with him? Uh, no, like I said, Sundin was there, Sakic. Um, like I said, they were they were there if you wanted to speak to them. Not superly outgoing guys. Uh, I know Kaminsky and Gusarov, uh remember with Ricci and and those guys, they uh, they were like, oh no, or they have an interview, no speak English. and and But you go to the bar with those guys and those guys are pretty fluent in every language. You can... You can talk to them. They can carry on a conversation as well as the next guy. Um, funny guys, uh, like you said, there are not too many guys in hockey that aren't cards. But, um, yeah, no, he was good. Uh, the little bit that I got to. Uh, and then, like I said, when we went to the, with the Avalanche and stuff in, in Colorado, they were there as well. So it, was, uh, it was good. They, like I said, to the Russian guys, per se, always knew about their core strengths and they get, I don't know how much weight on their legs, and they do X number of squats, and they're like, oh, enough, too much heavy. And those guys could go for hours, but uh, a little bit of sandbagging going on by them. But uh, definitely elite hockey players and, and good guys. Yeah, for sure. Um, the next year in Cornwall, and you'd mentioned it before, and you had two teammates I wanted to ask you about. And, of course, you brought them up earlier, like I said, and that's Serge Robert's and Wade Belak. What was it like playing with those two? Uh, really good. Uh, Serge taught me a lot about fighting. Uh, like I said, it's never a role I wanted, but lots of things made good sense to him. Um, he was tough. That guy was tough. If he Had he been a, a little better skater, I think at the time with Probert, Crowder, all those guys, he easily would have been a top five guy in the NHL as far as toughness. The ability to handle punches, take punches, and just the technical side of the fighting. Uh, he was pretty amazing. Wade was still young. Um, it was a tragedy. Uh, like I said, he was just a young kid, and you did what you had to. You talked to him. Good kid. Uh, just That's all I remember mostly about Wade is just being a good, honest kid, working hard, playing the game hard shooting the puck card. I, I just came across some sheets my mom had given me she'd saved, and it was a chain letter because you didn't have the internet at the time, and everybody signed something, wishing everybody uh, well in the future, and it was actually from Wade. It was uh, a bunch of uh, papers with about probably uh, 20 guys in there from across the American League, two guys in the NHL, uh, saying good luck in the upcoming season photocopied and then sent off to 20 years next players so i have that sitting by my my night table in my house that's awesome man um yeah wade belak what a what a force he was and of course it's unfortunate what happened and everything like that um big, big, big mama belak <laughs> 
he was just an animal. Um, and, you know, another guy you fought that year, and I also had him on the podcast way back when, was uh, Frank the Animal by Lois, and you fought him. What was it like going toe-to-toe with the animal? Uh, like I said, I can't recall the fight itself. I always remember hoping never to fight him. Just reputation precedes you, and every time I watched him fight, he did well. And so, like I said, you did what you might not have won every fight as a fighter, but you stood in there for your teammates. That was the important thing. The animal, like I said, his his reputation preceded him, and like I said, uh, I think I had a couple beers with him one night in uh, St. John's, uh, Newfoundland there, and and he is. Uh, He's every bit as nice a guy as he is a good a fighter. So uh, kudos to him as well uh, for doing everything that he's done and uh, and still maintaining that uh, that uh, level of uh, professionalism. Absolutely, yeah. He's one of those dudes who um, I think if he, I don't know, maybe played the game just a little bit better, he definitely could have been. I mean, he didn't lose many fights at all. Um, no, if not you ever, at all. No, yeah. If, you, if anybody out there goes back and looks at Frank by Lois footage. He'd uh, very, very rarely lost a fight. Um, so he was definitely a tough, tough, tough dude. Um, I can't even think about guys that I played or fought against that. There's a couple guys that are bigger, stronger guys, but as far as the intensity of, to which he approached the game and the, the fighting, I don't know that there was a guy that, that did that on a regular basis as much as Frank did. Yeah, he was he was always busy. It seems like I mean he never turned down any challenges. Um, you know, so the next year you're with Cornwall. Well, you're with Cornwall, and then you end up getting traded to St. John's, um, or excuse me, St. John with the Flames. But uh, yeah, you, that year you also happen to fight Ken Baumgartner. Uh, what was that like fighting it Bomber? It was good. Uh, watched that fight not so long ago. Showed it to my son. Uh, he did cut me. I, I thought that it was a pretty even fight per se. He was he was tough. Um, like you said, it was I was realizing that in order to make that next step, I was needed to be able to do both. And like you said, I think that was the season I went from thirty fights to thirty goals to thirty fights the next season. So it was an all star season for me, and and you know had an opportunity, had hope. To, to make that transition, which never happened. But um, big, strong guy, once again. Uh, he's mentioned numerous times fighting numerous other heavyweights in the NHL. And, and like you said, had a, had a guy been able to... I don't even want to say that would have been a turning point as well as during the fight, because I don't think I did that bad. But um, uh, it definitely raised eyebrows, and, and it was a good opportunity to show another skill that I felt I had yeah and so you know you're with uh you get traded to St. John how did that kind of happen I'm not even really sure why or how Um, be whatever not even sure where they went with that uh on that given day or whatever but it ended up being like um, Avalanche were strong at the time. Uh, maybe Calgary. Nothing asked for. It was more than anything. It was a big surprise. Uh, I still, I look back at it, and and I guess Colorado was looking for Vesa, which never ever happened. I don't know. If, 
if you ever seen it. I'll try and send you a clip of it. It's the the greatest greatest hockey trade ever to ever exist. I don't know if you ever seen that. Uh, I'll try and sometime post it and send it to you. It's the TSN did a little nip on Beth and I uh, about it, uh, kind of a whimsy, whimsical, comical thing. But yeah, I think they were looking for Vesta. And it, as it turned out, it, Calgary was good for me. Uh, did well in the playoffs, did well in the regular season. Played with uh, Lattice Falcone and Marty Murray, a couple other good guys, like I said, uh, Todd Simpson, uh, Lushko, Royalson was there. So it was a good, another good group of guys who did well in the, in the playoffs. Uh, but the trade itself was, well, in a sense, insignificant to me as in that it didn't see it coming. Right, and yeah, it's. Uh, some, I, I was going to say, I wonder why they traded you because I mean, you had uh, you had fifty six points in one hundred seventy one penalty minutes before they traded you to uh, St. John. So I, I don't know. It's like you you were doing it all at that point. Um, but you know, before before we get into the uh, the old ninety six season, you happen to fight another guy who's a big name and he played in the NHL as well, a few games and uh, big name in the minor leagues. But he was uh, the Nigerian nightmare, Roman Ender. What was it like fighting I- Roman? I just seen a picture of him, uh, picture of him today in Facebook. Yeah, and I, was, I, I think that was posted by uh, my old buddy John Searson out there in the Enforcer group. Yeah. I think that was it. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I, so I looked him up because he was in Coventry, and I didn't realize he played overseas. Uh, probably the worst game of my life. I think I was minus five or six in four shifts. And in one one sitting, I had 33 penalty minutes in one stoppage and play, including <laughs> the fight with Roman. And, yeah, it, I couldn't do anything right. Every time I stepped on the ice, the puck was in the back of the net. Uh, had a had a, a word-slingy match with my call, uh, coach, Paul Baxter, I remember it. And I think I even got... I didn't even know it was a penalty. I think I got four minutes for attempted spearing. I didn't even know that was a penalty, but after that, it was an accumulation of the 33 minutes, along with cross-checking, 10-10 in a game, fighting. Oh, it was, yeah, he was tough. He, I do remember him punching me because every bit of all of his, uh, his the concrete there in the old Rochester barn, that's for sure. Yeah, he was a tough motherfucker, and I was. It's funny. I'm, I've always been waiting to see his footage from Danbury because, of course, he played for that uh, Danbury Trashers team. But I have yet to see really too much footage. I think they're doing a documentary on it, so maybe it'll be in that. Um, yeah. But you know, the next year. Well, before we get to your fight card, because I mean, this is the, the fight card you have the next year is just fucking insane to even look at. Um, but I got to ask you about a couple teammates and. Two tough bastards, and it was Sasha Lakovic and Chris Dingman. What was it like playing with those two? Dinger, and, and he's a close friend of mine. I've seen him here not too long ago. He's in Edmonton, back in Edmonton again. And you know what? I never really considered him tough until he made that next step to the NHL. Like you said, he fought and and did well, but he I didn't I never considered him. And as far as Sasha. And I know I'd never speak badly of him because he did what he had to do, but I literally kicked the shit out of him in in, uh, in practice one time. <laughs> uh, but uh, he was, and I don't want to speak badly of him because I I'm not that guy because it's a tough role. But he was definitely 
unique. <laughs> Crazy. Leave it at that. <laughs> and you know what? I don't. He, I don't. I don't know everything about him because we're teammates for such a short bit. And and I got called up to Calgary, and they asked me about him, and I said, "Yeah, I think he's just a cancer." That's my honest opinion of him. Uh, and and they called him up, and then he and he stood. But right right before they called him up, I beat him up in practice, and you know and. He's just, uh, and I hate hate myself for saying this, but I don't know that he was a hockey player. He he did a good job of entertaining and being physical, and no doubt in my mind was he strong and jacked uh, by all means. Like he was a built like a Greek god and and fought. But there comes a time, and it always bothers me when when people say you're a goon or enforcers. Well. There might have been goons at one time in the NHL, uh, but like I said, the guys that are there, even the fourth liners, they can play hockey. Those guys are are enforcers and and are not, you know, they know two plus two, they know ten times ten, they know like George Peros, like the guys on the on the Guardians. Um, they all they're all educated men. They they did it. it was part of something they fell into, and and it it stifles me when people say, you know, all you did was fight. And I know that's all they show on YouTube for most of the guys that were tough. But uh, we played against Horse Lake, and so Sasha was there, Theo was there, um, Gino Ojek. Gino played four minutes a game in the NHL as a forward on the fourth line. He played 25 minutes a night in Horse Lake on the back end as a defenseman and never made a mistake. Like, there's guys that are, they're players. They're, they're, they're beyond in, uh, enforcers or goons. They're not, they're enforcers. They're guys that, that played the game and fell into an unfortunate role. Um, I know there's a few guys, Rocky Thompson, a teammate. He loved his boxing. He loved fighting and he was good at it. But, you talk to and you've talked to lots of these guys. I don't know that any of these guys went out there and said, "I love this as much as they said I have to mentally prepare for it and the the part in the in the ice guardians where it says, "Am I gonna fight him? Am I not gonna fight him?" I think it was McGratton said, uh, am I scratch? I'm scratched the, the mental burden that that plays on a guy uh, is way more than any physical abuse that you could ever do to your body. Right, it always, I, I, you know, it seems like that's uh, that's part of the reason I always say it's it's one of the toughest jobs in sports. Not only are you putting your body through this insane amount of fighting, because it's like it's not like boxing, where boxing these, you know, the heavyweight fighters they have, you know, what two, three fights a year maybe. You know, hockey fighters and enforcers, they're they're going through the ringer game after game. So not only are you putting your body through that that physical toll of you know your hands, your face, shoulder, whatever the case is. But you also have to deal with that mental aspect of, you know, you fought this guy. Okay, now you look on the schedule, and oh, now I got to look at this guy. And you're thinking about it. And you're like, I think it's Scott Parker says he fights him in his head 43 times, and then you get up to the game, and he scratched or uh, Scott Parker yeah. himself is scratched. And so it's like that's got to take a toll on people, man. And it's uh, it's that's probably even 50 percent of you know, the toughness part, because the toughness part comes from the physical side, then the other 50% is the mental side. 
So it's always Absolutely. it's crazy to think about, and you know what guys like you know even yourself because you got to look at a roster. Oh well, fuck, I might be going with you know. Uh, John Baduke tonight, like fuck, and then you look on the next game. Oh well, now I got to go against you know so and so. So it's it's a never ending cycle almost, and that's part of the reason it's you know the toughest job in sports. Yeah, and we'll get there. But like you said, uh, I'd go in and there'd be Nightcar, Bezo, uh, Banks, Crowder, and I'd be the only tough guy on our team. And at the time, it was first fight is two plus two, and the second one is five minutes of fighting, and you're gone. So you knew that the chances of me being the first guy up and fighting any one of those four guys was incredibly stupid and and the fact that you had to do it it wasn't even when it wasn't even if you had to do it it was like more like when you had to do it and and so you you'd have that whole week leading up to your weekend games knowing that they got four guys that are as tough as as you or tougher and you have to make sure that you look after the other 16 guys on your team to the best of your ability until uh, for as long as you can or exiting the exiting the game uh, uh, with a second fight. Absolutely. And, you know, talking about some tough guys and, you know, having to think about it, uh, the first guy that sticks out on this fight card of yours from this season was uh, Eric Cairns, big Eric Cairns. What was it like fighting him? He was a big man. Him and Jerry Fleming were two of the guys that kind of, kind of turned my turned the tides for me as far as we that year. I think, like you said, Simpson, Allison. Uh, we had a guy, Mark Lamarche, who got hurt. Um, all our tough guys that got called up to Calgary because they had a rash of injuries and ended up sticking. And a couple guys in the minors that couldn't fight. I did well against those guys. And like I said, you go from thirty goals, twenty nine goals to 29 fighting majors the next year, right, behind uh, I think uh, Bondi led it with 500 minutes, and he only had 35 fighting majors and had 500 minutes, and then you had Kevin Sawyer who had 30 majors and uh, 300 and some minutes, and then I was there at two, 292 and 29, right? Um, it, 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 like you said, he was a big man. Uh, you just tee off, you hold on, you you duck and you dive and you make sure that you make the most of every punch and, and utilize your energy. But yeah, like it, I, I tried to never fight anybody smaller than me. That way you win, you're a hero. If you lose, you were supposed to lose. Right. So <laughs> exactly. One, one, here's one guy that, uh, probably, and you probably, you might even have him on the show is, uh, Ryan Vandebush. There's one guy. I saw go toe to toe with Serge Roberts and glad that I, I never had the pleasure of fighting because pound for pound, I would say he was probably the toughest guy I ever seen fight live for sure. Oh yeah. Van and Bush, man. He was a tough motherfucker and he would just, like you said, just go toe to toe and didn't hold anything back. And well, fuck, you saw it with Kiprios, of course, uh, you know, ended his career, unfortunately, but uh, that was, uh, and I don't think you can say that was attributed to the fight itself as much as, the fall to the ice, and, right? And I'm pretty sure, and I can't speak for Ryan, but I know in nowhere in his mind there was that any of his intention other than just to no, go of course not. 
Right, and it's it, something like that happens. It's like you know with Colt Nor and George Peros, and of course people people will use those as examples to uh, you know kind of take fighting yep. out. And I, you know, it's I get where they're coming from, but at the same time, when you have dudes diving down to block shots and they're taking pucks to the face, but that's still allowed in the game, and nobody complains yeah. about that. Really, it's like, yeah, well, you know, what do you want? I think I, if I if I believe correctly, I think soccer still leads. I know there's more people playing it, but Percentage-wise, I still think it leads uh, sports and concussions. Yes, it uh, does. You don't even need to be hit. You don't need to be hit in the head for concussions. Uh, I remember once Nick, uh, not Nick Fiorentino. Uh, I can't remember his first name. Fiorentino for Binghamton Rangers elbowed me in the corner. I want to say my first year. Uh, don't remember anything of the game. Pretty sure I was concussed. I played, I played great. Played a regular set for the rest. And like I said, I've never been ever diagnosed with a concussion, but I'm pretty sure I've had them. And 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 the game is definitely, like I said, looked after and have a trainer and the coach is listening to the trainers, which is awesome. Um, but I know that, and I, maybe it's me getting older, but there's days when I can't remember what I had for breakfast. So, I mean, you have to look after your health because I'm 48 years old and taken on to, like you said, physical jobs and talked about the University of North Dakota and the ability of maybe you've had uh, furthered my education beyond the one-year university. These are things that people in anything need to look forward to is the life expectancy of your of your one job and what are you going to do after. Exactly. And yeah, it's, I'm glad it's gotten better now. Um, and it's almost gotten, I think, counterproductive with how overboard with they've gone with the no fighting thing. Um, but I, you know, I get where they're coming from, of course, but at the same time, when dudes are getting concussed just from blindside hits because nobody's even looking up with their head all going up the ice anymore. Well, it's, it's yeah. I never went into the corner and I still don't go with my head down. Um, is guys, they don't protect themselves. It, it's fine. It's fine for the rules to protect them. But when I'm teaching my kids in my hitting classes and, and skills, like I said, yeah, the kids, you go into the corner, you get hit from behind, you break your back, the guy gets five minutes, you're in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. Well, where's the rule protecting you? At the end of the day, you need to protect yourself because emotions take over and there's always going to be that one guy. It doesn't matter what sport. It doesn't matter if you're driving down the road, if you're walking. You have guys coughing on people or people coughing on people because they're just idiots. You have people taking cheap shots. You have people road raging, flipping people off, you know, sideswiping people. At the end of the day, as much as you want to have faith in humanity, you are responsible for you. And if you take care and you make sure you're safe to the best of your ability, then you've done your job. If you're skating around with your head down and expecting the rules to protect you, like I said, what happens if your own player, you know, clips you? I mean, there's nothing that says your own player can't hit you, but if you're aware of your own player and he's coming towards you and he's lost his own balance, that might be enough to save your career in the concussion. Exactly. And yeah, it's like, it seems like more and more now today, you know, of course, you know, this is me speaking Joe Schmo from the couch, but it seems like guys just don't expect to get hit anymore going into the corners. And so when they do happen and people are just baffled that it does, it's like, well, you, 
you kind of took a lot of the hitting and everything out, but you took a lot of the hitting out, but you sped the game up. So now it's almost like, it's like I said, it's counterproductive. Guys aren't expecting to get hit, but they're getting hit at a higher speed than ever before because the red line's taken out. There's no more obstruction. So it's, it's a double-edged sword with that, whether people want to admit it or not. You're absolutely right. And, and Gordy Howe's son mentions it in his, uh, in his book about, you know, his dad playing the game by a certain code. And you know what? He's not going to hit you with your head down. He's going to let you know that you're here. Here I'm coming. Uh, there was a respect for, for human decency in life. And, a, and a, like you said, a, a code that there isn't a code, I think Kelly Chase said. And you know what? If you cheap shot me, you know what? A cheap shot is, if not now, karma will catch you later. And if you if you run a guy hard, you know what? Okay, I took it. It was a clean shot. But you know what? Expect to be hit as hard or harder in the same way, but cleanly. But but they're, because they've taken out the, the the hitting or they've tried to lessen it, I don't think guys respect it. They don't. There's no repercussions for what they do. Um, I don't want to call it vigilantism, but um, but like I said, if you know that Ryan Reeves is sitting across from you and you clip somebody, Mark Stone or somebody, inadvertently, you know what? You better expect that you might get a, a glove in the lips or, a, you know, a stick behind the, on the ankle or an extra, an extra face wash or an extra, an extra oomph when it came to hitting a guy into the glass. I don't, I don't think in general people respect one another. Uh, everything has become such a entitlement. I'm entitled to be protected. I'm in, I'm entitled to skate down the ice. You know, it's a privilege to be on the ice. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to drive on the street. So, so respect it and do your best at it and play the game or, or within the rules. I mean, everybody's going to bend the rules. I bend the rules. I bump the goalie or skate through that crease as much as I could to make sure that the guys knew that I was on the ice. Like I said, it was hated. Yeah, but but I, I don't think that I would, like you said, the slew foot or the head down. Um, I'm sure I'm sure there's times when I would be borderline and, and maybe some regrets on my part is how I played the game. But in the same token, I knew that if I touched the goalie, it was coming back my way, and and I and I had deservedly uh, had that coming. Right, and it's it's funny because you know people will look at Reeves or Wilson or whatever in, in today's hockey, and they'll see a clip of Wilson. I don't know taking a run at a guy. Oh, look look at look at Reeves. You know he's he's bad. He's a he's a goon or whatever. Well, they don't they don't see they, that's all they see. They see that fifteen second clip. They don't see what led to yeah. that because chances are there's a reason that you got you poked the bear on with somebody on Vegas. So Reeves is doing that now, yeah. and people just look yeah. at that 15 second clip, make an assumption, and that's it. But they don't realize the game within the game that that happens. There's there's shit that happens on the ice that's not seen oh. or the cameras don't see. So now Reeves is going to take matters into his own hands because the refs didn't call it. But now Reeves looks like yeah. the bad guy. It's just it's well, just like, the way it goes it, now. Somebody faked, like you said. Ovi's pretty good at looking after himself, but but he's still your superstar. I mean, uh, or Backstrom or Oshie, right? You know, you you know get a stick up a little bit high, 
you skate by, you make sure you know you know what your stick was up. Happens again, it won't you won't be so lucky the second time, or uh, you know a little shot on the ankles, or you know what gets me is guys in the scrum and they guys are skating away and you get a shot in the back of the legs. At least be looking at the guy when you're punching him in the face. You know what? And and I be I I'm not gonna lie. I've punched guys in the face with my glove on because that hurts just as much. But there's something that's coming to them. They knew they knew that you know what? Maybe they they took a run at a guy or took a run at me. You know what? And uh, and I wasn't gonna you know what? There's gonna be repercussions. And I didn't, I don't want to say it was bullying, but letting them know that it wasn't forgotten. I'm not a pushover. I'm going to be difficult to play against. And if you want the puck, you're going to have to go through me 10 times over to, to score a goal. Exactly. It's just it's just the game has changed so much. And whether people want to admit, or people want to admit, but whether you know people like it or not, it's up to them now. Um, but it's just, it's just changed so much where it's just, I just, I personally don't like it anymore. And I don't need to see a fight every game. And I've mentioned that numerous times on the podcast. I don't need to see a fight think, every game. I think there needs to be, I think there needs to be that, that presence. I don't think it has to be a fight because you can have a, a good hard hitting game and that's just the intensity. If the intensity levels there, you don't need that. Like you said, Protect the teammate, change the momentum of a game. Sometimes a fight will bring up the intensity of your team, change the momentum of a game. You know, and then I'm not saying always necessary, but usually two two com, uh, uh, compliant compo- uh, opponents and go forward from there. Uh, here's just a little story, kind of off this talk about fighting. Uh, I think two two falls ago, I was sitting. So there's a Spruce Grove Saints of the uh, Alberta Junior Hockey League here, owned by Danny and Lindsay LaCalt, who also own the Seattle Thunderbirds. So I was sitting with Danny and Ryan Smith. He was there. I think he was part owner at the time. And it was the se- end of the second day, and finally there was a fight in the junior game. And we both looked at each other, and we said, when we went to camp, you had a line brawl, the first drop of the puck of the first the first scrimmage. And that's how the game went, and it set the tone. And I and I'm glad it's not like that anymore. But but when you know that there's somebody out there that's that's able to do it, or a little bit crazy, you think the game. It and it's it's part of the game. If if all if all I had to do was get in shape and skate around and not worry about whether I'm going to be hit, and I had lots of time to handle the puck. You know what? There would be so many more superstars, but because guys can hit and have that little bit of crazy side to them, that's what makes you elite or allows you to play that next level. Is how you play the game in your head, right? And like you said, with the line brawl thing, there's a there's a happy medium, and you know, it, like when you were in training camp and you said there'd be a line brawl, it eh, do you need that anymore? No, that, probably not. No, you, know, it's, yeah, you don't uh, need it. But at the same time, you know, showing a little bit of emotion or showing that you actually give a shit or that you're, you're kind of crazy out there, that's also good. There's a happy medium. It's it's now, and, it, you know, of course I've mentioned it before, but it's now to the point where that's not there at all pretty much, you know. And so there should be that one or two, you know, the, the presence, like you said, on the bench to, yeah. I guess, stir the pot or keep people on their toes and, you know. The intensity. Um, going from the American League to I got loaned out to Vegas for 10 games 
And in, in the IHL, it seemed like there's a lot of guys that have been in. I was, I think I was my fifth year pro. So in the American League, that would have made me one of the veterans on most teams. I go to, I go to Vegas, and I'm got second or third least years at five years of pro hockey, and it's almost at times like you don't touch somebody because they're an elder, and I have the utmost respect for an elder um, in, in that sense. But at the end of the day, uh, Lanny McDonald told me riding down my first year after being drafted, go down to Spokane with him. He said, as much as you respect these guys, they will take your job. And when you stop looking for reasons to be at the top of that mountain, then you've lost what's gotten you to where you have been, the ability and the, the want, the drive to be better. Uh, I heard, I think it was on a strongman competition, uh, the wolf at the bottom of the hill has more fight in them than the, than the dog at the top. Absolutely. And, it, it, you know, it's true. It really is. And so when you, when it stops being fun and you stop wanting to be better each and every, every night, then you, you might as well pack it in. Um, it was, uh, Jay Woodcroft and Ian Herbers told me, I was at a coaching clinic, uh, two, three summers ago, and they said their biggest challenge with Connor McDavid was finding ways to improve him every day because he would come to the rink and ask, how can you make me better? He wanted to be better. Three years ago, he was still one of the best, if not the best forwards in the NHL, and he wanted to be better. He asked. He trained. He asked, he showed the ability to be better. And when just after that injury, when you thought he couldn't be better, faster, stronger, there he is. And once you lose that in any aspect of the game, wanting to stop more pucks, wanting to, you know what, uh, hit harder, shoot harder, skate faster, it wasn't until later in my career that, had I realized early in my career, which made it, might have made the difference, that my cousin asked me, he says, are you, how are you doing? Not too bad. He says, I'm almost able to reach into somebody's chest and pull out their still-beating heart. <laughs> like that kind of grit and, and determination, like the, the human body and what your limitations is only set by your mind. Absolutely. And, you know, getting back to your career a little bit, man, uh, you know, you'd brought him up earlier with, what, 500-something penalty minutes in the course. He's an absolute legend in the minor league world, uh, actually in the hockey world in general, as he, you know, holds the most career penalty minutes. But you fought him, and that was one uh, Dennis Bonvi. What was it like fighting Bones? Uh, you know what? It, it's funny, and, and I'm not trying to pump my own tire, but uh, I've had, I, I think I fought him four times along with the Duke and had great success against these guys, and and Bonby, from all accounts, like I said, top-notch person. Uh, I, I remember the one, I think it was the last time I fought him, uh, warm-up, chirping me. I, I wasn't much of a talker, chirping me at the red line. And I'd always get nervous. I'd go in and puke, come out, and and fought him and did well. I don't want to say fed him his lunch because I never was a never was a killer or 
or crush people or knock people out by any means, but did really well. And it was it was always a battle. He always came to play. He knew that if the gloves needed to be dropped, that he'd be the first guy to be in your face and look after a teammate. Um, so, so it was always, like I said, he was always a nightmare to play against because he was so tenacious in that sense, uh, as well a player, and then fighting as well. And But on the other side, like I said, he had 500 and some minutes that one year with 35 majors, and so that's six more than me, and had 200 penalties minutes more, right? So and he was definitely a rat of sorts, but also a tough rat. Yeah, and, you know, you'd... I thought for sure, you know, you'd see him up a little bit more in the NHL than he than he was. But of course, you know, he ended up having a fantastic career and holds a record that, of course, will never be broken. He would have been a small guy as far as as the NHL was concerned at that time. I think when we were playing, I think your your average, if you look at the average height, was probably six feet, buck ninety five, two hundred. I sat at six two two ten, and he was what five eleven, maybe six feet, and and pushing a buck ninety, so he fought heavyweights and did well against them. But uh, you know that next step is always tough. Like whether you be a fighter as a heavyweight, and I've always said this: it's easier for a third and fourth liner to guy to go up in the NHL than it is a first and second. A third and fourth line guy can play on any line. A first and second line guy has to play power play in first and second line minutes. As a third and fourth liner, you can bump and grind. Or you can play, like said, Cassian. You can play on the first line, make room for guys, and have a successful career. Yeah, and you know it's uh, it, it's a, like a tough job in that aspect as well. And I think it was Scott Parker who said it that you know you could get sent up, and then you're king of the town, and the next day you're just shipped out. Um, so it's just another another mental part, I guess, of being a third or fourth line guy. Um, and so, you know, another guy you fought that year, too, is the late Bird Dog, Greg Smith. What was it like fighting Bird Dog? Well, that, that might have brought on myself. That might have been my fault. I remember we were playing in uh, St. Uh, John's, Newfoundland, and uh, I think it was Marcel Cousineau. He might have been out of his crease. <laughs> and I uh, went for the puck, and uh, no, somehow Marcel fell down, and Next thing you know, I, I took down, and, and I think before, I don't know if it was Bird Dog that gave me a spear, but ended up uh, separating the cartilage between my ribs, Ooh. and I fought, 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 and then uh, they actually had to take me off on a stretcher. As it worked out, he got super instigating, and there was a spear in there, and we ended up winning the game, but but I, I couldn't, I literally couldn't breathe. It was probably the worst injury that I can recall as far as recovering. It took so long for the cartilage to recover. Uh, I do remember I might have had two or three Tylenol 3s and maybe a, a beer, just one, of course, and uh, dancing on George Street that night night, and, and I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, <there you laughs> the next go. morning, that the next morning, not so much. <laughs> Absolutely, that'll uh, that'll cure it pretty quick. Um, <laughs> uh, another guy, I gotta ask you. Well, I'll ask you about three more guys from this fight card because I mean, your your fight card is just fucking insane from this year. Um, yeah, with a guy who kind of you know found his niche out in the old Quebec League, but you fought Jesse Rosanzoff. What was it like fighting him? 
Uh, Jesse was a big guy, actually. He was pretty young then, and, and uh, he's also a firefighter here out in Alberta, too. He, he I, I would uh, sharpen his and the sun skates on a regular basis. And uh, I don't know what I was thinking when I was younger, but these guys are big men, by the way. They're not, <laughs> they're not tiny. I, no, not at all. They were huge guys. Uh, another guy that I don't know if he's on there is uh, oh, uh, Darren Stolk at, at 6'4", 225. And this guy, I, uh, he came in, got his skate sharpened. All these guys are firefighters out here in uh, Edmonton. And uh, recognized the name, bring his four, three pairs of skates up, and says, said, uh, you ever punch me in the face? I said, and shook his hand. And uh, yeah, he's a big man as well. But Jesse, yeah, he's he was tough then too. It was. I don't think we had a very long fight to be honest. But uh, he actually asked me to fight. Well, speaking of big men as well, <laughs> well, hold on, that's kind of funny, Def. Ever did you ever punch me in the face? That's kind of funny. Um, yeah, we laughed. <laughs> but... We laughed, and I shook his hand, and, and I have big hands, but. He dwarfs my hands. Uh, yeah, he's a he's a big man, and he is a, a Greek god. He was that all of that. Absolutely, and you know another big big guy you fought in, arguably during his era, the NHL champion uh, as far as the heavyweight title belt goes, was uh, none other than George Larocque. What was it like fighting him? Georgie and I, and we we've stayed in touch over the years. He was going to be a DJ at my second wedding. But he was booked that night. Oh, that would have been unreal uh, having George turn, yeah, turning tables so for the wedding. <laughs> I, I knew he was a lefty, and I think it was my second or third year pro, one of his first. I think we were in Hamilton, I want to say. And so I, I grab on a little bit low, and I'm on my way to work up, and he pops me with two or three lefts, and I push him out, and he goes, You okay? <laughs> and so, no, he's. Uh, definitely one of a kind as well but uh that's my story i don't know if i got any licks in but i know he uh i knew i hurt his hand a couple times made sure that i popped popped his hand with my head a few times to learn them so that he didn't come back for more <laughs> there you go the uh yeah the old gentleman george larock and always uh always the nice guy everybody always loves the clip of him you know the uh oh square up you want to go all right good luck man with the uh, old coyotes that was a that's always a beauty yeah. clip um and, you know, the last guy I'll ask you about from that season, and he's uh, he goes under a lot of people's radars, I think. And, you know, he's very underrated, in my opinion, but was uh, Christoph Oliwa. What was it like fighting fighting him? Because I feel like a lot of people, I guess, overlook him, maybe. I unfortunately ended up with him, and it was, a I want to say, a line brawl of sorts in, uh, I think we were in Albany. And, uh, yep, yeah, you were. Mountain of, mountain of a man looked up to him. And tough as nails. I don't know that we exchanged a lot of punches, but I do know that he was. There was no moving him. There's some guys you can, you know. He was pretty pretty decent on his skates. Uh, any of your better fighters, I would say, are probably some of your your better guys on their skates as far as stability wise, right? Uh, and their balance because it takes a lot to be thrown and jerked and pulled and so on and so forth have that good center of gravity but he was he there was no move in him he was he was big 
I might have, maybe I, I don't even know if I hit him, maybe I swung at him and missed, but his, his arms were long, George LaRock's arms were long, uh, Vorel's arms were long, uh, just a few guys out there that, like I said, you have to be in tight and, and licking their face like like Brad, Brad Marchand to get a, <laughs> get a lick and punch them. Yeah, there's another case of, I guess, well, the mythical code, which I think has been misconstrued a little bit. But, yeah, I think Marshan should have been tuned up for that. But, of course, in today's age, oh, it won't I, happen. My, and my dad went nuts over that. He said that would have never happened. And uh, and I agree. I would have – you know what? If it wouldn't have been in the, in the playoffs or whatever, I would have taken my five games just to pop him right in the lips because that is just insane. And I and – I, and I, 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 consider myself a, a pretty by the code kind of guy but you know what there's some days there's guys that need their their lips put in the back of their throat <laughs> i mean absolutely i don't blame you i mean that's the thing about marshan though man he's a hell of a hockey player fucking phenomenal guy just the shit he does that he doesn't have to answer to is ridiculous because yeah. like i said like well like you said if if, if that was back fuck even maybe 10, 15 years ago, that shit wouldn't fly at all. Like, that, that would have well, been squashed even, real quick. Even the Cassian, Kachuk things, like you said, when when Kachuk took a run at Cassian, there was way more intent to injure when when uh, when Kachuk hit Cassian with his head down. There, like, Cassian could have been seriously injured, but at least when Cassian grabbed Kachuk, Everybody in the building, everybody across Canada knew that 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 Cassian was grabbing him. Kachuk didn't have to turtle. If he would have just stood up, taken it, everything would have been fine. Like he knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. It wasn't like he punched him in the back of the head and would fall to the ice. As soon as he did what he did, he he if he didn't know repercussions were coming, then he may have been the dumbest man on earth. <laughs> right it's just like you know you take run well and it wasn't just one run he took i think like three at cassian it's like yeah, eventually you're and gonna poke a, the bear enough you're gonna you're gonna pay for it and as a left winger right winger wherever he's playing and cassian was down on the goal line all i know is my coach doesn't want me below the hash marks so what he was doing there i have no idea he was on his own agenda <laughs> right Here. um I gotta tell you one story here. Oh, go ahead. Just because talk, talk about dumb men. Played with Dougie McDonald, and I don't know which player, and maybe it never ever came up, but he was playing in Rochester. Just a couple stories. He's playing in Rochester, and he said we had this one guy. We called him Two Men. And I don't know if you've heard this before. I said, "Well, Dougie, why did you call him Two Men?" He says, "Because no one man could be that stupid." He said. <laughs> No, I've never heard that. That's fucking phenomenal. And and then and then about Sergi and Sergi was probably one of my best friends, and I still would consider him that way because he he looked after me and taught me a lot of things. But uh, I guess he was playing with uh, against Doug McDonald and Doug's in Rochester, and and so Dougie, he said he had a kind of a late hit on one of the players, and and whatever, and so the coach sends. Serge Robert's out to, to to Doug McDonald and says, Serge, says, Serge, have a word with McDonald. So Dougie's story, he says he lines up with me, 
looks over at me, leans down, and says, "Last night, I eat at your restaurant." <laughs> <laughs> McDonald's. Yeah, that's fucking great. <laughs> Go have a word with him. <laughs> Sergi was pretty funny. Like you said, he's come he come out of that, I don't know what they call it, that Wild Goose Senior League Quebec. And then uh, we were sitting in, uh, in the dressing room and everybody went across except for him and I for power play and penalty kill. And I'm like, Serge, did you fart? No, no, that's my breath. Oh, God. <laughs> What a fucking yeah, character! But, oh, and a great guy, but but smart. Like even even for his role, uh, what he played and how he played, as his limited skills, he uh, he was a smart hockey player. He knew he knew which guys to look after. He knew which guys to poke. He knew where to be. He knew the game, uh, even though his skills didn't allow him to play what I probably had hoped, like Mario, who had was able to uh, I don't know if he Mario got one or two Stanley Cups but uh, but uh, hoist the cup you know right yeah it's always, from what I've heard it was like well both brothers were just tough as all fucking nails um, yeah. but it seemed like Serge was kind of the tougher one and uh, Mario was kind of the uh, more I guess finesse Fourth player field. yeah yeah it's, Mario was a solid third fourth line guy third line guy that you know came to play and and did what what was asked of him and what teammates needed from him for sure right um well you know so the next year is your last year uh playing in uh north america until you know oh five uh but before leaving that you know you had a you had another another tough fight card here well to start off you fought greg smith the first three fights of the year for you you fought him twice in one game and then uh the another time uh, october 24th apparently those, those must have been mistakes. I'm pretty sure I didn't want to fight them. None of them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Not after the uh, the cartilage getting separated in the ribs there. Um, uh, <laughs> but you also fought another guy who's uh, you know kind of big in the hockey world now is uh, Jason Strudwick. Strudwick actually he interviewed me. Uh, no, he didn't. Not so much interviewed me. Uh, him and Joaquin Gage were on in Edmonton here on the radio and. So Gager was chirping me up about how he made his best save on me and struds and stuff like that. He was on the radio and so, uh, but yeah, I don't I don't recall that. There's a lot of fights and like I said, never had a concussion that I was diagnosed with. But uh, like you said, jarring memories and stuff like that. Um, I know he was strong. I've skated with him, being from Edmonton and all the same stuff. But a lot of these they. They slip me by, whether it's by choice or or by my aging body or mind or so on and so forth. Um, it'd be hard to talk educated about him, even knowing that other than when I did play against him, he was always a, a very solid defenseman defensively and just tenacious in the corners. Reminds me a lot of John Clem, who I used to practice against all the time and not afraid to give you a cross check in the back while you're battling from the puck. Right. And yeah, it's uh, Strudwick is always a pretty, pretty solid fucking player. Um, yeah. and, you know, well, another guy who grinded it out in the minors for years before finally getting a shot in the NHL and actually stuck once he got up there, uh, you fought him was Sean Thornton. And how did that kind of go for you? Um, yeah, like you said, I, I know, 
I know of the guys that I fought, and like you said, lots of it is a blank when it comes to being a light switch on and off. And and I don't want to say it was a bad time in my life as much as one of those things that you did in order to stay in the game. And and he was like you said, he was he was a force to be reckoned with. And I think he only got better as as time went on for him. Um, he destroyed guys in the minors, and then likewise in the in the NHL. Yeah, I love, I'm a huge fan of Thornton. He's like one of the last. I guess uh, I guess true enforcers to play the game um, up until I think, oh, fuck maybe three years ago. Um, I can't even. I'm trying to think of when he stopped playing, but I mean it wasn't terribly long ago. Um, oh, it wasn't. They all everybody fades away, like you said, uh, um, like Kelly Chase, and even when Brett Hall says he was the player that he was because of these guys, and and lots of guys are underrated or overlooked, but. When you talk to the teammates or your skilled guys, they remember who was there to pull pull guys off of you or make sure you had that ex didn't get that extra whack at the at the face off uh, just by your presence either on the bench or playing on their line and and I don't want to say it's true for when I played in St. John because I played with Marty Murray and Ladislav Kohn for the better part of of that season and averaged half a point a game and like I said 292 minutes but I think. I think I created room for them, and I think at, at the time they were thankful that I was there for them. Absolutely. Um, so the next year, though, you actually ended up playing overseas in the old British Super League. How did that kind of happen, man? What made you uh, What made you go play over there? Well, my intentions were good, is what I thought. Uh, hadn't been offered a, a, a contract here in North America. Uh, Keith McCambridge, uh, somebody had gotten a hold of him and. He said, no, I'm not ready to go yet, but here's a number. So Dave Whistle called me, and uh, at the time, my first marriage was on the rocks, and I figured the ability to be home and, and you know, be with my son and my wife would, would hopefully, uh, you know, uh, cement things and make things more concrete in the relationship. So I, I left, I think, with the right intentions. Uh, I wish now I would have stayed looking at back at some of the guys who had hung on in the American League two or three years longer. Um, you know, they had their cup of tea and then a few more games, or even some guys managed a one or two two seasons, um, you know, feeling that I was I was at least of their caliber and maybe given the opportunity I would have had that chance. But I, I left to, to, at the time, save, save my relationship. Uh, in the end, it didn't work out. But uh, being over there, it ended up uh, being very successful for me and, and well-liked and, and renowned and, and success in, in the British Super League and the Seconda Super League and the BSHL and everything that it's been called since. But they're, they're first division over there, yeah. So Well, yeah, you ended up in Bracknell. How, how, how did you like those sweaters that they had over there, those beautiful things? They are hard on a person's eyes. But... <laughs> With Don Nike, we never missed a paycheck like some of the other teams, and there was never worry about that. Uh, my teammates were good. I'm, I'm in contact with quite a few of them still. Uh, Rob Stewart, uh, Colin Moore, Todd Kelman. Um, uh, Rob Stewart's son, actually, very good hockey player, hoping to get him over here to North America. Uh, I think he's registered. They're going to come back this way, but uh, excellent hockey player. Uh, Rob's from uh, Selkirk, Manitoba. But anyway, those guys, we all went over to Belfast. I signed there. 
my first year, first signing, first professional goal in Northern Ireland, first fight, and first guy kicked out on December 2nd. So I uh, tried, to, tried to make sure I covered everything. Absolutely. And, you know, a couple of guys got to ask you about that you fought over there. You know, I don't want to keep you too long here. Um, oh, no, go on. Well, so you, you ended up fighting this guy multiple times, and I know he's been over on a Fourth Line Voices show, and I'm sure the uh, the From the Vault series is going to be released with him on it, but you fought Mike McWilliam a handful of times. What was it like fighting Mac? Uh, Mike is an amazing, amazing person, amazing man. Uh, he's a battle. Uh it, I have not a bad thing to say about him. I would, I would fight him. As a, you know what? You beat the shit out of each other, and you we did what we had to do, and neither one of us liked it. But uh, he was a warrior, absolutely. Um, we Facebook back and forth, and messages and stuff like that, and uh, been there, like you said, uh, talking to guys that only understand what what you've gone through because you've been there yourself. So uh, he's been a, he's been a good friend uh, off the ice as well as uh, punching me in the face. <laughs> For sure. Uh, you know, one thing I want to ask you, man, is like, how is it playing? Like, how is the game different? Or I guess, let me rephrase that. How different was it playing over there compared to North American hockey? I would say um, the most inconsistency or the biggest change would have to be to the refing. That's what I, every uh, time I ask that. Typically, that's what people usually say is that the officials one, over there were just more atrocious. You can't and and one is maybe not playing the level or watching the same kind of level. Uh, I don't think it was intentional by any means by the refs on that sense because I do have an utmost respect for the refs because it, it's it's a hard it's a hard position to play. Uh, but the uh, how the the game is perceived, uh, and I don't want to say it's a takeoff of, of uh, football, soccer, uh, European soccer, but um, the toughness. Uh, maybe there's more influence from the fans. Uh, maybe the, and I don't want to say power trip as much as maybe trying to control the game too much instead of letting it police itself in a sense. Um, and that could be coming from the guidelines of other of the, the their officials who they answer to as well. Right, that makes sense. And it's, I, I guess, maybe not watching North American hockey over there as much, you know, knowing how the game would police itself in that, in that sense. Like you mentioned, I could see how it would be a little bit different. And the um, Watching the game, you know yourself when a guy steps on a stick or when a guy intentionally pokes at a puck and trips a player, right? So, I mean, you know, there's the discretion and instead of the black and white, right? A tap on the stick or an inadvertent bump or an intentional bump or being pushed in or watching, knowing, seeing the snow come up as the guy is trying to stop on a goalie leaning back against the defender and then being thrown into a more of the guy just takes a half tap and lets his body go limp and falls on a goalie. Right. Yeah. It's like you said, it's not as black and white or well, it's black and white, but they don't kind of perceive it that way. So it's, you're going to, no, you're going to get inconsistencies. No. Like you said. Yep. Um, yeah, for sure. 
So a guy I got to ask you about as well, and you know, I, I think I've private messaged him a couple times, but it was uh, old Corey Bolio. What was it like fighting him? He was tough. Uh, he's on my Facebook as well. Uh, lots of good posts from him. And uh, all these guys are, like I said, there isn't a, there isn't anybody out there that I can, that I would speak badly of. I have one guy in mind, but I won't mention him. Uh, but uh, all these guys, like I said, I think of the job that I did and and the stuff that I went through, and I think I was pretty on top of things. And if you if anything goes sideways for you, it's 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 easy to to become. I don't want to say unstable because that's not right. It's it's the the thoughts and the the mental pressures of everyday life maybe aren't handled so every one of these guys has has done a great job of keeping their lives together uh if not excelling at it after doing such a shit job for so many years right exactly and you know it's uh it's good to see when when guys will kind of have you know they i guess have come to terms that they're not in the game anymore but they're good to see that they have a good head in their shoulders and everything like that uh through facebook and stuff like that so it's always good yeah. to see that and and as the game has come on and and with multi with media and stuff able to contact guys and uh i had uh, uh a friend of mine her brother reach out to me uh greg stefan and then talk to me and and like you said, there's things that you can only talk to people who have lived the game that would understand it. Like when I tell my other friends, I have a few friends and stuff, and uh, <laughs> not to sound like a pig, but when you read Penthouse letters and it says, I never thought it would happen to me. Well, there's shit that's happened to all of us that nobody else would believe. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um. Well, so... Before we leave, uh, we leave Bracknell. You also fought a guy who was super tough, always going toe to toe in the NHL, and you, you locked horns with him over there overseas. Was uh, Denny Vial? What was it like fighting Vial? Uh, actually, I, that was one of my better fights. He went to slip his sleeve. I remember this because I watched the fight. Went to slip his sleeve. Uh, release, grabbed him higher, his hand got stuck, did well against him, but he was tough. Uh, uh, like you said, he was one of those guys that uh, did his role well, you know. Um, definitely his uh, reputation preceded him. So when I fought him, I was, oh, I don't want to, you know what, I was scared, for sure. Definitely scared. <laughs> I don't blame um, you. Wary, uh, but in a sense, uh, you have to have all your, uh, your faculties about you and, and make sure that, you know, you don't make a mistake and, and end up, you know, in the hospital. Um, so as, as I got older, you're definitely more calculated. Uh, you, you know, not enough not to fight at the end of a shift. You sit down like Serge used to do with me and, and point out lefty, righty tendencies. Uh, guys have been around the game more. And, and I tried to do that as I got older as well, sit down with guys that I thought might fight and let them know, yeah, he's a lefty, he's a righty. Um, he throws two lefts, and then he grabs your pants and tries to throw you down. You know, little things like that that, that might make make, your, make you more successful, uh, maybe not even in winning the fight, but definitely not losing it. 
Right. Yeah, there's always little tricks to the trade there, and it's uh, cool to see. So, oh, who was it? It was Vandermeer, actually, that I just interviewed, Pete Vandermeer, and he said, like, Serge yep. Robert taught him more about fighting yeah. you know, than anybody else, and that he pretty much learned more from Serge than he had the past, like, you know, five to ten years Absolutely. of fighting. And Pete, he was over in Belfast as well, and I had a chance to meet him played hockey against him and his brothers out here. We call it Rocky Hockey, uh, baseball and uh, softball and, and hockey. And the Vandermeers and the Pankowitzes uh, took it the first year from Onaway, and then and then we won a bunch of years after that. But, yeah, that's a, that's a good group of boys there that are tough and hockey players and farm boys. So. Oh, those fucking Vandermeers, they grow like weeds, man. There's just fucking so many of them. <laughs> it's just like, they're like the Hansons, but more of them. Exactly. There's fucking. I think what, what was it? Six of them is what uh, what Pete said. And then yeah. And then Pete has four kids himself. I'm like Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. Yeah. For um, sure. So you know, a, a couple guy, a couple more guys I got to ask you about, and then uh, we'll get you on your way here. But you fought another guy who, uh, you know, from what I've heard, was always super tough over there. But it was Paul Ferone. What was it like with uh, Ferone? Uh, yeah. He Rocco was. Uh, he was one of my teammates. He was a good guy. He. He held on and teed off, and uh, yeah, he was tough. He was tough. Not very big, but uh, tough. He liked to do what he did. Uh, skated hard, hit hard. Um, good, good guy too. Yeah, yeah, Rocco. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, probably being a teammate of his too. Well, and then of course your last, your very last year, you played over there. Um, well, actually, take that back. Not your last year, second to last year, you fought another NHL tough guy, and it was also minor league legend. Was Doty? Uh, excuse me, Doty Wood. How did that go with Doty? Doty's good. Like, uh, not to, not a stereotype, a stereotype guys, but a native, and he could throw, go for hours. Oh, that's all uh, I hear. Every time I mention or like someone native gets brought up, they're just they're, the natives are always just tough as fucking nails. Yeah, and he you know, he did well. He was he he threw he threw lots and lots of punches. Another guy that might not have been on there was Paul Cruz. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Cruz missile. Yeah, and he uh, I was so glad that uh, Dave brought him in the next year to be on our team and be our captain. And uh, what a leader he is as well as being a tough guy. I watched him as a kid. Him and. Uh, um, Kelly Buckberger beat the shit out of each other at the hash marks right in front of me, big bad, and thinking, boy, I hopefully I can be that tough, and then end up fighting him years later. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, fucking no cruise missile. He was tough as nails. Uh, and the last guy I'll ask you about um, in your your tenure over there in uh, Europe was one Mister Barry Nykar. What was it like fighting him? Because I know he played a couple games for Anaheim and uh, was a big name over there. And if I was ever to speak badly of anybody, it would be him. Uh, got in the line brawl. I got sucker punched seven times by him in the back of the head. We had been friends skating here in Edmonton, and uh, I, I'm not going to wish any ill, any ill, anything ill against him. But uh, when you speak of codes and and stuff, uh, I don't know how you tell your friends or your kids that. I'm tough because I sucker punched somebody seven times in the back of the head. Um, he lined up with me and I said, Pax, I'm sorry. It wasn't like he accidentally high sticked me or a cheap shot. Uh, and I gave it to him. You, there's, if you look it up, it's the Nottingham brawl 
and I can't remember what it is. They still talk about it. I think it was an old three maybe. Uh, NF, NF, never forget, never forgive, hashtag. And uh, if you look that up, and then there's the fight where uh, uh, the, the only fight afterwards after that. And it was, uh, I think, Dodie Wood and Clark were holding my arms, and I was fighting a Tolbert was his name. And Tolbert had actually started. It wasn't even right at the end of the game. And then he came in, took his shirt off, and sucked me in the back of the head. Ended up having an uh, operation because of an aneurysm. And this is kind of the first, actually is the first time I've ever spoken publicly about that incident. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to wish anything ill upon him. But uh, as far as toughness goes, um, any respect that I might have or would have had for him uh, would be zero to to less than none right now. Um, I don't think that he ever displayed toughness uh, in any sense of the just because he fought, I don't think that made him tough. I think uh, um, he, his overwhelming size and strength made him what it was. But I don't think that uh, uh, what I would say would make a, a complete hockey player or even a tough guy enforcer the heart. I don't think it was ever there. I mean, I can see why you'd have uh, you know different feelings, especially if that's uh you know, that's the kind of the outcome of it with an aneurysm. That's uh, pretty hard to forgive that. So, um, well, my understanding was they used to call him the dancing bear because he'd hang on and not really throw punches. So I know he had lots of penalty minutes and stuff like that, but, uh, if you run around without purpose, that doesn't make you a hockey player or even an enforcer that makes you a clown. Right. And it's, I mean, it's one thing for me, you know, as a as a fan watching and everything like that. But of course, you know, what's right from the horse's mouth, like yourself, it's you know, it's proof is in the pudding, yeah, I guess. And, and, uh, and you know what? And and I could be absolutely wrong. I mean, I'm sure there's guys out there that said that Schulte could never play a game or uh, didn't play by the code, and and that's all right. I mean, it's only my opinion. Um, as far as doing what he had to do for his fans and teammates, if that's what was needed and that's what was expected of him. I mean, that's fine, but um, as far as just an overall, like I said, I think when I teach my kids as a coach, I think I try and teach you to be a better person, and then hockey is just a privilege that comes with it, and I don't think that being a better person ever came from what he did on the ice. Right, and well, you know, at least uh, I'm glad you recovered from it, and you know, you live to tell about it obviously and um yeah it's, that's fucking that's tough man yeah and then and it wasn't just that it's just like you said you as a as a enforcer tough guy a hockey player i think uh, i would consider myself extremely old school in that sense uh clean cut shirt and tie to the games kind of guy hold the door please and thank you um that 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 did not follow any or, or any kind of structure or becoming of a person. Uh, if you watch, uh, if you watch, and you've seen it, a few good men at the end there. It says, "Why are we dismissed? We did what we were told." Well, we're there to protect the people that can't protect themselves. We live by a code and honor, you know. First and foremost, so I don't think. 
any of that was followed. I think that was just, and you know what, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a total adrenaline thing and lost control of himself. Cause that happens, you know, you black out, you don't know what you're doing and maybe he does have regrets about it, but uh, I don't think there was everything, anything ever said, you know, even, even guys, you know, that, you know, questionable hits, you hear them calling, text messaging guys, making sure they're okay, right? Yeah, and so he hasn't, you know, reached out to you or anything like that? And, and, and you know what, it that's, doesn't bother me as so much as just the situation. I think that whole situation was bad. Uh, I think I could have expected more from my teammates. Uh, I know that if one of my teammates was being hit, I think that I would have reached out or it would have taken a lot more to stop me. Uh, a couple guys in there that had, 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 a you know, hold of them, um, laxed and maybe they were afraid of getting punched in the face, but you know what, at least one-on-one and looking a guy in the eye, you have a more chance, a better chance of, uh, defending yourself than a guy that's laying on the ice and has already has three guys on him taking a punch in the back of the head. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's just a crazy fucking situation to be in. Um, but, you know, something good that did come out of you playing over there was you actually had your number retired by the Belfast Giants. You know, what, how big of an honor was that for you? Uh, extremely. Uh, the fans themselves, uh, very loyal people over there. You couldn't ask for a better, better people to be associated with on or off the ice. Um, the, it was a... It, like you said, the organization, but just the adoration that I, I receive each and every time I talk to somebody from over there or when I go back for testimonials, um, just to be, just to feel like, like it is your home that you've never left. Uh, uh, yeah, nothing can sing. Uh, kind of, I listened to, uh, Garth Brooks on Ireland. I'm coming home. I know Ireland is the South, but, just uh, the song itself is is pretty amazing. Uh, there's a video out there, the 20th anniversary one. I'll try and track that down for you as well if you haven't seen it on the Giants. And uh, like you said, the song itself it it's uh, it's very heartfelt and warm, along with the raising of my jersey and my number. Absolutely, man. And well, there you go. What a career you had. And. You ended up having your jersey retired over there, so it's forever on the rafters over there in Belfast. So, um, I mean, fuck, you did something right, eh? Uh, yeah, and like I said, I was lucky enough to be uh, in a good organization pretty much over my whole career. And like you said, have fans and, and family to follow and support me along the way. Absolutely. Well, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, you know, sharing some stories and, um, you know, I'm sure it might've been a little bit hard for you to talk about the, uh, the whole NICAR thing, but I appreciate you for, you know, opening up about that here on the podcast. Um, and, you know, opening up about everything, man, you know, giving people an insight on the game and kind of the game within the game that people don't see and, you know, a, a better understanding yeah. when it's right from the horse. It's one thing if, if, you know, my fat ass says it from the couch, but, you know, right from the horse's mouth, I think people maybe get a better understanding of it, you know? Oh, for sure. And then, and as much as we, as people like to think we have experience or empathy or sympathy with people until you've, you've gone through it or actually lived the situation, uh, to the, to the T and the identical, 
it's never the same. Um, you can say I've been in a rainstorm or I know what it's like to get wet, but well, how cold was it? Does it hit me in the face? You had a cut on your face. Nothing's exactly the same ever for anyone. And, and all you can try and do is understand and, and learn. For sure, man. Well, you know, again, I can't thank you enough for coming on. And um, I know people are definitely going to enjoy this. And I've noticed the podcast itself has gotten a little more steam over there and uh, Europe and everything like that, according to uh, some of the charts and stuff. So hopefully a lot of European listeners will enjoy this. And uh, I will make sure that uh, I let my followers know and Kingdom of the Giants and uh, people will definitely, definitely appreciate what you're doing there. And uh, like I said, uh, they're a loyal following, so you can you can count on their support. Absolutely, man. Well, you know, thanks for coming on and I hope you have a uh, great night tonight, man. Thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Have a great day. Stay safe.